So we'll begin the afternoon session with some questions and answers and even though not everybody is up here yet, uh, we'll begin because time is pressing on. So I'll ask the questions for in English and translate for Tanajan and we'll listen to his answer in Thai and then I'll translate back into English. So again, please be a little bit patient with the translation. The first question was, um, could you please advise how we should calm our minds at the time of death? As a Buddhist, what should we do and how should we practice leading up to the death moment? Thank you. So Tanajan explained, um, with the contemplation of death, brings up a state of mind, you could say, heedfulness, apamada. It's that reflection on the fact that life is very uncertain. Death is the only certainty we really know. We know one day we must die, but we don't know when, or where, or how we will die. But we do know everyone must die sooner or later. So we contemplate like this to bring up this sense of heedfulness, carefulness with the fact that life is uncertain. We also contemplate that what is death? Well, it's the death of the body, the body stops functioning. Um, at that point, we have to see, well, what will cause us suffering? Well, it'll be the loss of what we are attached to, or the, 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 the fear of that loss. So while we're still alive, we still have our breath and our good health, we can train ourselves, practice to contemplate this. So our teacher Ajahn Chah taught us to um, develop this perception of the impermanence of life in, uh, you know, in our daily life, just to bring up that ref recollection, that contemplation. So, for instance, he would say, well, we have things around us, like a cup. You have a cup. We call this item a cup, but really, deep, look at it more deeply, then the cup is just um, made up of the four elements, the four physical elements of earth, air, fire and water. They come together and we call it a cup. Um, but really it's just those elements and they're destined to degenerate and to break up. cup won't last forever. We must also contemplate in a way maybe to reflect, well, what if I was to die today? How would I practice? What would I do to meet my death if it was coming today? And you might re realize that oh, I need to practice mindfulness. I may need to recollect all the good practice that I've done in my life, the good things, the good states of mind, and bring that up right now. Um, particularly the meditation I've done, the meditation objects and techniques I've used and developed through my life. It would be a, a cause for you to turn to that if you are facing your death today. So we might have practiced recollecting the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha and the qualities of the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Um, we might remember, say, when you come into a hall like this, you bow to the Buddha statue 
if you've done that many times through your life, you'll be able to remember what a Buddha statue looks like. The face of the Buddha, the serenity, the peace of the Buddha. And as you recollect that, bringing up mindfulness, you can um, make your mind peaceful at that time. Or you might just practice using the mantra, Buddha, which means the awakened one, and just bring mindfulness to um, put attention on this word, Buddha, 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 and make the mind very peaceful. We have to think about it. When we die, we must give up everything, give up our possessions, separate from the people we love and like, and so on. So for our mind to be peaceful at that point, we have to practice this first. This is what we learn when we practice meditation. We're helping to accept the fact that these things are impermanent and that we must separate from them. And if you were to say what causes a human being to be reborn in a good place, a sukati realm, you know, a realm, a place, go to a, a destination that is happy, where they experience peace and happiness, it would happen because they've learnt to let go of their attachments so that they don't get bound up with sorrow and suffering at that moment when they leave this world, when they die. So we have to practice keeping our mind in a wholesome state. Now back in Thailand there was one man who I knew who helped build the monastery, uh, build it up in the early days, build the buildings and so on, and then he would practice the Dhamma, practice keeping the precepts, listening to Dhamma. Later in life he got cancer, very serious cancer. And at first the illness was so strong it depressed him he went into a sort of great depression his mind was very dark and un, in a sort of very negative state but he managed to get through that perhaps the good karma of having helped the monastery over the years helped him and later on even though he was still ill he began to practice meditation again using the mantra Bhutto. And so for the last six months of his life he was meditating and he managed to make his mind very peaceful and prepare himself for death in that way. Then later on, even at his own funeral, that man, people actually saw him uh, appear near the coffin and near where I was giving a Dhamma talk, and he came into the dream of his wife and children and just told them in the dream, I'm peaceful now, I'm going to a good place, you don't have to worry about me. So we should really put effort into our practice so that we can also make our minds peaceful to face the inevitable death that we all must face. The next question. Dear Ajahn, I try to be mindful all the time. For this I take body, moment, movement, breath, butto and the super meditation objects. I change these depending on the situation. Is this the correct way? Or should I stick to only one all the time? So I'd recommend you to develop, first of all, a foundation in Buddha Anusati, a recollection of the Buddha. And we can do this together with Anapanasati. So as we follow the feeling, the sensation of the breath going in and out, 
we can recite the word Buddho. So as the breath goes in, Bud, as the breath goes out, To. And keep using that as a way to put one's attention there with the breath and the word Buddho over and over again until one's let go of the distracting thoughts and the mind becomes quiet and still. Once it's reached this one-pointed state, then as thoughts start to come up again, that's the time to turn to contemplate the body. One contemplates by putting attention on the 32 parts of the body, one by one. Or contemplate to see the body as the four elements, until one develops a clear insight into the selfless or ownerless nature of this body. Uh, to see it as just made up of component parts or component elements. There's no real self or being in this, in this body. So any meditation object we use, uh, whether it's the breath, uh, the mantra, uh, or any of the other ones, the aim is always to use it as a skillful way to make the mind calm down, become concentrated, serene. And from that, we use that as a foundation for developing insight, for contemplating to see truth in an unhindered way. So whichever meditation object you use, uh, use it well, do it a lot, meditate on that a lot. Next question is, what is Sankara? How, does it co- how is it a cause for rebirth? Sankara... Um, Uh, means something that is conditioned or a formation or something that's fabricated. And there's different kinds of sankharas. There's mental sankharas, jitta sankharas. Uh, So it's mental formations, uh, states of mind and so on. There's rupa sankhara, physical formations, such as a person or an animal, a tree, mountain and so on. These physical material formations we can divide into those with consciousness, so that means beings, people, animals and so on. Or those without consciousness, so something like a tree or a chair or something like that. So a sankhara, it's a formation that arises through causes and conditions it comes into being. Uh, when those causes and conditions change and finish or end, then that formation will also come to its end. It will disappear. Now, the Buddha taught that the mind, the jitta, is conditioned uh, by, by ignorance, contemplating, going back to the source of all the mental formations we experience. He said, oh, this is, all arises out of ignorance, uh, Misunderstanding of truth, ignorance of truth leads to this, the beginning of this conditioning process. Uh, ignorance gives rise or conditions the delusion of self, sense of self, belonging to self. Uh, through the arising uh, ignorance conditions, craving, attachment, becoming. And from that we get birth, old age, sickness and death. We get the round of birth and death. If there is no ignorance, then no sankhara, no formations are created. If uh, 
there's wholesome sankhara. If the conditioning is what we call wholesome or skillful, then we get uh, mental states that become the foundation for um, a wholesome or the cause for a wholesome rebirth. So wholesome mental con- conditioning, mental formations will lead to, say, rebirth at the time of death in a deva realm, heaven realm or brahma realm. Unwholesome mental formations, unwholesome mental states, conditioning the mind will lead to an unwholesome state of mind at death, lead to a birth in what we call a lower realm, a realm of suffering. If there's no conditioning, mental conditioning going on, we call this wisankara, meaning without sankara, without conditioning. And this is a way of describing Nibbāna, the goal of Dhamma practice. It's a state without suffering, without birth or death. Um, and this is the, comes through the result of the practice of developing mindfulness and wisdom to end this conditioning process. Ajahn, there are some dangers for Buddhism. For example, I heard that Nalanda in India one of the great universities was once burned for three months after the moguls set fire to it. How are we as lay people to share merits with devas and nagas and the sangha and so on for protecting Buddhism and also this monastery? The second part, how do we pay gratitude to seen and unseen forces who are protecting Buddhism in a practical means on a daily basis. Thank you. So the question was about um, protecting Buddhism from danger, first part, how can we do this, and with sharing merits and so on. Tanajan continued on from the previous question, just mentioning again that when we look at the human mind, uh, mental formation, sankhara, there's two main kinds. There's the wholesome and the unwholesome. Of course, all um, sankharas, both physical and mental, are impermanent, changeable. So formations... Uh, say, built by human beings, so as in the questions, a great university like in Nalanda, in India in the old days, it's still a formation that is impermanent. It's built up and eventually it crumbles or is destroyed by invading forces. Um, Similarly, the mental formations that led those people to destroy are also impermanent. Uh, at one time, a group of people saw fit to destroy that university. Well, they had come under the sway of their own unwholesome mental formations arising in their mind, leading them uh, through, say, anger and for other reasons to destroy something good. And sometimes anger as a destructive force is like that. It can destroy something very good. But we can contemplate just the impermanence of formations, both our own states of mind and the material world around us. Um, And we can see that even though the material world might get changed and even destroyed sometimes, and just over time things pass away as well, things break and crumble and degenerate, 
but really these are just formations the true Dhamma is beyond that it's, it's permanent it's not impermanent like those formations it's not impermanent like the mental states of people the moods of people it's not impermanent like buildings and so on the true Dhamma uh, is always there whether we realize it or not whether we can penetrate it or not so we can see say in the history of Buddhism well there used to be very um, strong Buddhist community and culture in northern India but over time that faded, disappeared and the first Arahants and first students of the Buddha moved out from northern India into Pakistan, Afghanistan, Tibet, China on to Japan and Korea and so on and others went to the south down to Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand and so on and that's, that's again a teaching isn't it the impermanence of culture and people and the movement of Buddhism through the ages from country to country you know, it's just reminding us of impermanence and when there are those forces in the minds of people to destroy something good like the practice of Buddhism well we can also look and see well what's that coming from well, it's just coming from wrong view a wrong grasp of reality not realizing the consequences of their actions not realizing what is truly good and beneficial and what is not that leads people to sometimes destroy that which is good um, but you know they haven't destroyed everything have they there's still our Buddhist temples around the teachings are still here available for us to practice it's like somebody goes into an orchard and they might destroy some of the fruit trees there and some of the fruit on the trees but if there's still some trees left well those trees can still bear fruit and give us fruit in the future so this monastery here is still here for us to come and make use of and use as a place to practice and hear the teachings as far as uh, these beings in other realms that we invite to protect and guide us well we can do that through our own meditation we can meditate developing the theme of metta you know, loving kindness spread uh, directed towards all beings in all realms so humans animals and devas and brahmas and other beings when one develops the meditation on loving kindness one is doing this to bring up a sense of harmony between people sense of mutual respect um, empathy between people and to uh, remove the causes for anger and disharmony and destruction from our own minds and from the minds of others so we can develop this as a meditation we can be, make the mind very concentrated on, on the practice of metta bhavana, metta meditation it can also be developed through the use of our own intelligence our wisdom and our skillful thinking you know, we can use our minds to do that which is good in life to uh, help support the religion, help to support and develop our own practice, help to protect and support other people who are practicing in different ways. Uh, I was in China last uh, a few weeks ago. One of the temples I, I went to visit there, one of the Buddhist sites, um, they had a very large um, statue of the Maitreya Buddha the next uh, Buddha to, to arise in the world at the entrance to the temple very large prominent place then behind 
further away behind the Maitreya Buddha was a statue of the Bodhisattva, one of the Bodhisattvas uh, being uh, dedicated to making merit building Bharami to become a Buddha but not yet a Buddha. And the Bodhisattva was holding in one hand a sword and that sword, it's a, it's a symbol of that the power in, in the mind of the Bodhisattva and you could say in the mind of all people it's just the recognition that sometimes we also have to protect that which is good. So the Bodhisattva is standing behind the Maitreya Buddha with the sword to protect the Buddha. And sometimes in life it is correct to use um, the appropriate, inappropriate way to use say strength and the forces of uh, correct forces of law and order and so on to protect that which is good. So we have governments, police and army and those sort of things. They do play a role in just protecting society uh, from any dangers and so on. The other part of the question about how to repay gratitude to those who have protected Buddhism and continue to do this, both the ones we know and the ones we, we're not aware of, well, really, you repay your debt of gratitude to those who have protected Buddhism through your own good actions by practicing the Dhamma, making your own life part of the practice, uh, dedicating yourself to the practice, to doing that which is good. We can recollect many, many people in history from the time of the Buddha down to, the, to today who have practiced um, the Buddhist teachings and tried to protect them in different ways using their own abilities and skills to do this. Uh, sometimes people very prominent in society like Emperor Asoka in India who was actually you know, the most powerful king or emperor in, in India at that time a couple of thousand years ago and once he saw the benefit of the Buddhist teachings he really put a lot of effort into spreading them, setting up monasteries and using Buddhist principles in the way he ran the kingdom. Later on, other figures we can look at like Venerable Buddha Gosajan who helped to spread Buddhism from southern India into Sri Lanka and across to Thailand. Or another one I was recollecting when I was in India is Anagarika Dhammapala who did a lot to revive and restore Buddhist holy sites and Buddhist teaching in uh, India and Sri Lanka and around the world. So all of those in history who have struggled to help establish Buddhist institutions, temples and so on uh, and to protect Buddhism in different ways, we can recollect their good example and try to follow their good example and we can use their, them as an inspiration for our own practice to do good um, and just try to incorporate some of what these people have done into our own life and see where in our own life we can look after Buddhism through our practice. The last question is, when I'm doing meditation, I go into samadhi, I felt that somebody different to me was giving me instruction. Sometimes I can see very far or a short distance very clearly. If this happens, what is the next step? Please explain. 
So when we practice meditation and develop mindfulness on an object, then sometimes the mind will settle down and become calm in samadhi. And if there's also insight developing at that time, we say to turn to contemplate our experience, it might be that we can see, uh, say, the impermanent nature of sankharas, these mental states, mental phenomena arising, passing away. Um, if we also have faith in the Buddha and his teachings, then when all these factors are there, the mind is peaceful, wisdom is functioning, our faith is there, and sometimes we can have unusual experiences arise in, in meditation. Sometimes these come up in the form of visions, nimittas, but there are other, other kinds as well. These visions might come up through, our, uh, when they do come up, they're coming up through our own efforts. Uh, it's a culmination of all the good practice we've done. We might have practiced dana, kept the precepts and developed meditation over time. And so at this particular point, the mind has gathered together and uh, such experiences arise. Um, Sometimes it's more than we can really explain in words. We can't quite say exactly how, how it arose or in what led to what. Um, but we can see it's through our own efforts in the practice that somehow the mind has brought up a certain uh, insight or a certain new understanding of reality. And this is expressed, say, in a particular experience, like a, a voice heard or a, a vision. Uh, Often it's because we've been practicing diligently for many hours in succession or for many days, regularly practicing. Um, it can be that we hear a voice, a voice comes up as if teaching us in our meditation. This is most likely to be our own mind just telling us, um, telling us to keep practicing and giving us encouragement. To really develop the practice, we have to do it regularly on a daily basis. You know, it's just like physical exercise. If you keep doing it, keep at it, then you gradually become stronger. So in the terms of practice, your mind becomes stronger. And then you might have some of these experiences when the mind becomes peaceful. For myself, I've had experiences like this. As one time I um, happened to be uh, where there was a dead person. I, so I was contemplating this, this dead person. And just, uh, they were in, the, the corpse was in front of me. And so I was just contemplating the impermanence of life, how we all come up in this world, we arise into this world, we're born into this world. We live for a while, and then we get old, and then we die. And my mind became very, very peaceful and detached at that moment, contemplating this corpse that was in front of me. And you know, the question arose, what exactly is this corpse? Is it really that person who I knew, you know, I had, there was a name for that person, their background, their personal history, and all the, the sort of memories I had of that person. I, on the one hand, I could see all that, I knew all that. But on the other hand, the mind could see also, well, it, this is really just conventional reality, we give a name and a personality and all of that to this, this body which now is dead lying in front of me but really deep down or truly speaking it's just 
the four elements. It's just earth, air, fire and water has come together uh, and, and here it is before me and it's uh, breaking up or going, going back to the elements are going back to the, to the earth and so on. So contemplating like this, there was a great sense of detachment and a sense of, well, there's really nothing here. None of that that we call a person, a being, is really there. And this experience came up in a way I could never have planned or expected or uh, that I'd ever thought about before. It just happened. And a whole new way of looking at at this corpse and, and myself arose at that time. When you do see truth in this way, in a sort of a new way that gives you insight into the true nature of reality, then it always gives rise to some energy and increased confidence in the practice. It's it's like uh, something that confirming that you're practicing in the right way and it gives you the energy to carry on practicing.